the most powerful community where you know you've built a real community is one where in which you can disappear. The original kind of the thing, the ROI you wanted can disappear. And yet people will still keep needing to do some version of the behavior that you've built. Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. If you ask anyone in tech about community building, there is one name that consistently comes up as the person to talk to. And that's our guest today, Daisy Onobogi, who is head of network and community at Back to BC and also the newly appointed COO of Diversity BC. In today's episode, Daisy and I discuss how you build purposeful communities, what the benefits are when you do, and why it's time for less discourse on DE&I and more action. I absolutely love talking to Daisy. She's truly striving to make the business world a better place, and she talks with such clarity and honesty. It's impossible not to be inspired by her. So with all that said, Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with the queen of community building, Daisy Onabogi. Daisy, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I don't know if you have heard any of us our episodes before, but we always like to kick this off with a little quick far round of questions so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So okay. get ready. <laughs> <Warm up. laughs> I'll try to be succinct. It's not, not my strongest <laughs> skill set, but I'll do my best. <laughs> awesome. Right. So if you can finish these sentence. Number one, when I was younger, I always wanted to be... Oh, I don't know. I didn't want to be anything. <laughs> I don't think I understood what the concept of growing up was. Fair enough. That's a good first answer. I think that's very accurate. I didn't either, really. Other than like a <laughs> professional cricketer when I watch cricket, footballer when I watch football, tennis player when I watch tennis. <laughs> okay, my first job was? Technically, usher at my mum's church for the first job I was paid for was waitress at a Sichuan restaurant in Dublin. Ah, very nice. I think that I think there's a lot of people listening to this that their first job will have been some sort of hospitality waiting. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, I, I, I think definitely it should did be a law. Everyone should have to do it. I think it teaches you the concept of empathy <laughs> to have been on the receiving end of what anyone in hospitality is being on the receiving end of. Should 100%. be a law. <laughs> <laughs> when starting my career, I wish I'd have known. I wish I'd known that everybody was figuring it out as they went along and nobody knew what they were doing. And I wish I'd known that I was autistic because that would have made a lot easier if I'd been aware. Very good. Very. I'm sure we might, we might come on to talk about that a bit more. I'm most energized at work when I... Ooh, solving problems, I guess. There's like this, I don't know. I wish there was a word for the click sound that I hear in my head when something just makes sense, just slots into place, which is extra satisfying when it's been a problem and the stakes feel high. So solving problems awesome we've had a few of those i think this is a, a common theme <laughs> yeah. between so entrepreneurial leaders sense, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and finally can you share something we couldn't learn from your cv so that could be a perceived failure or a setback in your career but that's something that you've learned a lot from oh that's very interesting something that's not on my cv which i guess is not on my linkedin but I've probably that 
I helped to raise my little brother because my mum was working several jobs at the time as a single mother. And I don't know, I think, I think, I think a lot that I've learned about the more emotional side of human to human interaction and the less analytical side has come from my relationship with him and watching him grow up. Oh, wow. That's, that's an amazing answer. Really, uh, really special. And um, I guess forced you to grow up very, very quickly, I guess, doing, <laughs> yeah, do, having that added responsibility. In, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, well, I feel like we've already got a little, a little glimpse into you, <laughs> Daisy. And I know you initially set out to have a career in law before you switched into the wonderful world of VC. So <laughs> I'd love to learn a bit about those early years of your career, what drew you to the world of investing? So let's start at the beginning. Where did that passion for law come from? I don't know if it was passion initially. I was like six or seven. And then somebody said that I was really mouthy at a party once that my parents threw and I should be a lawyer because I was so mouthy. And I was like, okay. And so every time someone asked me that question afterwards, what are you going to be? I just said lawyer because I had no other answer. And then eventually it'd been about eight years of me saying this over and over again. And it was time to fill out what you do on the form. And it just felt true by didn't of repeating it over and over again. And then I think sometime around then, I also started watching like legal sitcoms and TV shows. And then I got a degree more excited because of all the associations and the puzzle solving piece and their amazing outfits and their self-possession, et cetera. So I think that gave it a certain spirit of actual desire as opposed to just habitual repetition. And then law school was amazing in many ways. It turns out that you can learn everything about the way society functions by just understanding the ways in which we've constructed the laws. And then by the time I was in the actual career, at least starting it, it was very, very early. And I think I stayed for about 10 minutes total before I left. <laughs> but I, I had such a good time. There was just, there were just many variables. There was rules for everything. You could learn the rules. And if you learned the rules, you could figure out how to do it. And it just felt like as good a way as any other to pass the time if you were going to stay in adulthood. Um, and it was just competitive enough, you know, hard to get into, hard to stay into. That meant that the part of my brain that is extremely adept at pursuing competition was, was you know, pretty turned on. And so, yeah, it was, it was strange. I, I, I didn't have any reason to leave technically. I liked it just fine. But I think at the time there was this question that everybody was asking, which is like, what am I supposed to do? What is my calling? What's my passion? What's my purpose? Is this the right career? That question seemed to just be the norm of what to consider at that stage, like that leaving university-ish, finding your feet sort of for two, three years. And I didn't feel like I had an answer. I was like, I don't know if this is like, what the hell is a calling? And I guess I'm supposed to know. Everyone's acting as though you're supposed to know that you have a thing. If you just peer deep inside yourself, you find the answer. And so I kept looking for that. And I was like, well, there's no light inside my heart for law, so maybe I should leave and I, you know, knowing what I now know, I realized I could have just stayed and been fine because there is no such thing for most people. There is just what do you enjoy and what are you good at and what's going to pay the bills and some constellation of all of those and maybe also impact if that's important to you. I didn't know that then. And so I thought I sold law a little short, I think, in hindsight, because I wasn't sure that it was what I was born to do. Ah, okay, that is that is really interesting. And I've, uh, refreshingly honest, I think there's probably quite a few of us that have um, maybe bailed out of stuff maybe a little bit early. I guess life is funny in that way, isn't it? But um, you've clearly gone on to do some incredible things, which we're going to talk about. Before we get to that, though, I, I just wanted to wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit about some really interesting work you did with Refugee Info Network that you founded with some uni friends. I just I read about that. And I thought I've got to ask you because it sounded <laughs> fascinating. 
Yeah, it was it was really interesting. It was in many ways, I think, one of the sort of one of the most disappointing things I've done in a way because we didn't get to see it through in full. So the start of it was really simple. A friend of mine, Sinead, reached out. I think this was maybe about two years after we graduated. We'd been in law school together and she said, hey, you know, I would love to do something, something helpful. I'm feeling really overwhelmed by all the news about the uh, refugee crisis and I just want to be helpful in some way. And I said, I feel the same way and I don't know what to do with all of this like sort of helpless energy. And so we got together and she pulled in a bunch of other people. And I pulled a bunch of other people and then soon it was like maybe like a group of 30 or so from our class and from other places. And we said, one of the best things we can probably help with is the misinformation and just absence of information around asylum processes. Um, So when my family came, my mom and myself and my brother came to Ireland, it was as refugees, it was as part of sort of an immigrant refugee sort of asylum process or something. And I just remember even at that age, how confused and overwhelmed my mom was and how many times she would say, no, now we have to do this thing. No, now we have to pay this person to help us get these papers or now we have to do this other thing. And it just seemed like she was zigzagging and there was no one. And in my head, I was like, why is there no adults to tell her this is, these are just, just do this thing and you'll be fine. And so it felt really relevant that, which makes sense. Like it's just normal people. Like if I, if everything went to shit for you today, and then suddenly you are trying to figure out where in the world to go to, like, do you know off the top of your head, the asylum processes of most countries, the rules about where you can and can't land, where you have to go first to what paperwork you need People don't even keep these in their heads. And even if you factor for smartphones now existing and you can search for things, how much access someone will have to that on the go when they're running is questionable, even if they have access to it, to know what to search for and what information and to not be sort of taken in by other people's misinformation is really hard. And it felt easy. All we need to do is just collate this information. We have access to it. We know how to you know, find it online and put it together. And then we will sort of deliver it either, I don't know whether it's physical is better or whether sort of creating a website is better. And the project started in earnest. It was going really well. And then just life and all of us all being in the same kind of recent graduate crazy hours kind of role where you barely have any time after you finally stop working officially to like be even a modicum of social or engage with your family, let alone start an additional project. And it's so very quickly just started to fall apart because we didn't have the kind of, we just didn't have the bandwidth and the energy to create the organizational infrastructure to make sure that this pretty simple thing actually could be delivered to everyone. And in the end, we sort of, we wrapped up and we did our best to sort of pass on what we put together towards other organizations that were better equipped um, to do that work and fill in that gap. So I think there was some good that came out of it, but mostly what I just took from it was how weird and unfortunate that it's not more normal for like work to curve around life. And as we need it, we've made these sort of specific exceptions for, oh, well, if you have a child, that's big and it's true, but everything in your life can be big. And it's weird that you can't just turn around and say, I need three weeks because this thing is on my heart and it's on my mind and I can't really focus. And I would like to be able to do something to get this energy out that is, or this stress out that I have relative to it, and then just have that time and have that space. And it certainly didn't feel like any of us could have asked for it. I wasn't in any position to do so in this job at this time where I am in my career, sure. But at that time, that just wasn't possible for like 22-year-old me or whatever. That's a really interesting point. I think as we're seeing, given what we do in recruitment, you know, most people now coming through the ranks, the high flyers, the, 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 the young talent that all companies are fighting for are incredibly purpose driven and actually having the time and opportunity to 
pursue passions and passion projects and things that are really important to them if they are given that opportunity alongside their, arguably their work better and they'll be you know stick around longer because these sorts of things are really important so i wonder if yeah hopefully over time to come that sort of thing won't happen so much and actually we can all do a bit more good alongside our, our day jobs uh, it's really interesting quick question actually on uh, yeah so I, I didn't realize that you, you came to ireland as part of a sort of asylum process has that experience kind of helped form your identity and shape like how was that experience as a as a young person and has that played into sort of some of the things you've gone on to do yeah i think inevitably so in so many ways i'm honestly not even sure how to pick it apart but i think everything from how rapidly things had changed. So we, my, my father passed away when I was quite young, we were still in Nigeria. And I think it just wasn't possible for my mom to sustain things on her own. And it's a, it's, it's a wonderful place in many ways. And it's also an incredibly complicated place, I think, and difficult to survive if you don't have a, like incredible infrastructure. And she didn't anymore in his absence. And so like suddenly everything changed very quickly. And nothing quite made sense when we arrived because she barely had enough information for what she needed to do, let alone to start explaining it to like an eight-year-old and a, and a 10-year-old respectively. And it was very different. Our lives were also very different that time because we hadn't had that much proximity as a family. Now, Jay's very busy. Everybody's doing their own thing. You go to school super early and then you do after-school programs and you come back late and then you repeat. So, And we certainly our family didn't have the same culture of just so much time spent together. And now suddenly all of our time was spent together and we were in direct provision when we originally arrived. And so you're all in one room living together for a while. There was just so much instability, basically. And I, I think emotionally we were fine because we had like our own little sort of unit and we took care of each other. And my mum was always very good at being honest with us, the extent she could about what was happening and sort of trying to share as much care as she could. So it was weirdly okay. It was so calm and nothing happened. And yet it was also just chaotic because there was nothing necessarily to latch on. But I think it also taught me a lot about people because I had to pay so much attention to what was happening because suddenly the rules were changed. I figured out how to be whatever I was supposed to be in Nigeria and go to school. I figured out the rules of that. And it's sort of the way my brain works that I have to try and understand the rules of play before I engage. And I'd just mapped out sort of being whatever age we were in school in Nigeria. And now we were here, nothing made sense. And so there were suddenly so many different kinds of people to study, so many different kinds of contexts to study. We were living people from all over the world with all different stories. And I think a lot of what I now have as a skill set that arguably I ruthlessly exploit <laughs> um, for capital is around understanding people, is around social, is around figuring out what exactly people are saying by what they mean and what exactly they need and how you have to talk to them in order to be best understood. And how to build community is just a question of how to build bonds between people, which is just a question of what it is that they need and finding a way for them to serve each other and doing that. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that I would have as much understanding as I do. I think about all of the strange but kind of overlapping conditions of human behavior as I would have if we hadn't gone through that period. That's yeah, so insightful, and I think it explains a lot. So thank you for sharing that 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 personal story with us, Daisy. You mentioned that you have autism, and I think ADHD as well, um, which is something that f friends and family of mine have suffered with. And um, I, I just wondered for anyone listening to this that may be in a similar situation, who has 
similar hopes and dreams to achieve the sorts of success you have just for any advice for them that might be listening to this because there's not tons of people in the public eye in the startup world that actually talk about these sorts of important topics so I wondered if you would mind just sharing some just some thoughts and things for them yeah not at all and I'm I'm still slowly figuring it out myself but what I would say um is not to fall into the cliche of like autism is a superpower or ADHD is a superpower which I think is sometimes like is so reductive that it becomes a cliche or a lie I think rather it's having an autistic brain is just having a different way of engaging with the world at some point it became really clear to your brain that it couldn't rely on sensory information couldn't feel its way through of like sensing behaving and sensing some more than behaving some more and so it went with a different approach which is just to try and learn the rules and try and use observation and deduction and associative learning and there is nothing wrong with that. That is amazing. That is, well, it's, it, it is what it is. It is just as amazing as being able to sense your way through things and rely on your sense of information. They are equal and irrelevant. And what matters is how you are equipped and supported to do that. The reason people can sense their way through is that the feedback that they get tells them something and the world like corresponds with that and teaches them a thing or two. And the reason that I do just fine, as far as I can see, is that I have been lucky enough to get this kind of information that I can take in. And I have been given books since forever so that I could study everything I could about social behavior and why people do what they do and what they mean when they do this thing or what eyebrow lifts mean. And I have obsessively consumed and observed and figured it out. And one of the things that I do like about it, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, is that at some point when you understand most of the things, it also makes it easier to, as it said, do the right thing, if you will, because the behaviors you learn, especially if you're rigorous and applying logic can often be the best versions of behaviors. There's a reason people talk about things like rising above themselves or their feelings or what it is that they don't want to do and instead relying on what the right thing is to do. They're talking about the like rational thing to do, the reasoned thing to do. And that can come easily to you if you've literally learned certain behavior by the rules and by the book. And there's lots of all the little like silver linings or upsides or whatever you want to want to call it. So what I would just say is get really excited and curious about why you are the way that you are and then understand the ways in which that quite neutral factor can be good or bad, depending on the accommodations you have and the supports that you have. And then what I would say in a broader sense to sort of everyone in neurotypical people more specifically is like, what we forget is that accommodation isn't a special thing. It just like you get an accommodation when if you are, for instance, if you have a headache and you ask people to be slightly quiet, that is an accommodation. If you have glasses, that is an accommodation. If you have a car, that is an accommodation. All of these are to supplement or just to help you work around your environment. That is all they are. We think and make them something special because we fall into the trap of obsessing too much about the difference in words. When we say someone's disabled and you're like, oh, well, that's a special thing. That is you when you are older, when your knees hurt more and then you don't walk as much. That's all of us. That's you when you're a little bit ill. And so accommodating people in terms of being willing to do things that they ask you for, despite you not being able to understand why they could need that thing is not that hard. If someone needs extra context because subtext is not apparent to them. That is not that hard. Just find a way to get better at explaining yourself. It's also good for you because you, you will be able to explain yourself to yourself better. But I think it's a really important thing for everyone to think about whether you're neurotypical or, or neurodivergent is it is just a different way of engaging with the world. And both are equally capable if they are adequately supported with what it is that they need. So... Thank you, Daisy. Yeah, that is so important to hear that. And um, I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. Thank you.
I guess it's a it's an interesting segue into into back to VC. It's you know where you joined in in 2019. I guess before we dig into your role, tell our listeners a little bit about what attracted you to venture capital and 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 what specifically was it about back to VC that stood out to you. Yeah, that is a really good question. I think I wasn't attracted to the industry as a whole, I'm not going to lie. I think there are lots of people who know me who find it almost ironic that I'm working in something with capital embedded in the name. But I <laughs> I had this, I think when I was leaving law and trying to figure out what next to do, had this slight crisis of, because I think the way that I was raised could not have helped but develop a certain kind of like savior complex nonsense because everyone's like you're so smart you're amazing you're going to do great things and they never said what great was it just kept saying it and eventually i was like well i'm supposed to know clearly but i don't and that freaked me out for a very long time and then law for a while felt like it might be an opening to that because i was like oh well i'll do human rights that's apparently good within the way that people have described it because i'll be saving people and that's great and then when i wasn't doing that anymore i was like oh dog like what is the answer to pay your rent and also save the world and no one could quite explain and so i made a deal with myself that i would just like leave it for a while and put it on the back burner and just like try and figure out the immediate stuff like what to do for a living and how to like find my own personal ambitions and I don't know find a boyfriend and whatever else it is that I wanted to do at that stage was like I just need to put this in Pandora's box and close it and after I sort of left Rome or Rome the startup that I was working at was imploding a little bit and there was time to reconsider again what do I want to do with my time I was like, it might be time to open, not open the box, but I, I have to start thinking about weaving that what I always wanted to do and how I'm supposed to, I don't know, exercise this desire that I have to fix the world uh, myself back into what I do. And so I was keeping an eye on things that I thought might be impactful, but also things that would allow me to work according to ways I'd gotten quite used to. Like Rome was a completely distributed company that was in co-living. And so I like worked in Bali and then lived in Tokyo and traveled around and my time was my own. And I was managing a team at a really young age. I was basically feral. So the extent to which I could work <laughs> anywhere that was incredibly corporate or structured was super limited. And so all of those just meant that when I was like, what are things that are high impact? What are things that have, you know, huge ripples in terms of how societies or how it works? A lot of the ones that could have fit that bill, like maybe media or journalism didn't feel open to me. Um, venture was within the world that I'd been kind of oscillating around anyway, between Web Summit and Rome and other startups. And then I had a conversation with someone where I was saying, I'm kind of like, I don't like this industry, but I also want something stable that pays well and feels like it has an outsized reach and impact on people. But I don't like the idea of sort of being part of the problem as I see it. And she pointed out how very many funds were thinking differently, we're operating differently, we're at least trying to ask the questions that I seem to be plagued with. That was one of a few that came up in that conversation. And then while I was creeping around on the website and then on the partners, Facebooks, et cetera, I found a job ad for like Scout Lead, I think whatever it was, I, can't remember, I think it was just head of scouts or head of scouting, which was just the right kind of vagueness that made it clear that they weren't really sure what the role was going to be or what it was going to entail. And I was like, amazing, blank canvas. And it says all the right things. It was like it'd been written for me. They were like, oh, you're really good with people and you really like design and problem solving, but also social, but also process, but also it was this really kind of contradictory mash, seemingly contradictory mash of things that I think very few people have done, but a certain type of person will be drawn to. I suspect if I met everyone who interviewed for that role, we'd all be friends. Um, and so that was kind of in a nutshell what pulled me in. And then when I met them for the interview, 
I just fell in love with the culture and the team. And it was the first time I'd been surrounded by people who seemed to be simultaneously really, really kind and really nice, but then also brilliant. And normally I, I've had the, op- I've had one or the other where people are lovely, but I don't, con- I'm not afraid of them intellectually, which was the only way I could compute. I think at that point, like respect was just like fear. Um, or I was definitely surrounded by lots of people within debating that were terrifying to me in terms of what I thought of their intellect, but I wouldn't consider particularly nice or kind and want to spend time with apart from that, like, and induced performance but this had both and I was like whatever else happens I certainly want to work with these people um and that was yeah that's how that happened incredible and and just specifically about back VC is what is it about the culture and their mission that you think makes back VC a different type of uh, venture firm I think the biggest thing is 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 like the room there is to still the admittance of still figuring it out. I don't. I wouldn't say that BackVC has an answer necessarily to solving for any or even most of the problems that I, you know, I'm kept up at night by. But I think what there is is a huge amount of wiggle room because everybody seems to be similarly plagued. I think everyone's just one little halfway house of like really stressed neurotic millennials who aren't entirely sure about how to compute both you know, rise to the top of ambition as we've all been raised to do, but then also apparently make the world a better place, but also apparently have some sort of outside legacy impact. But also, and, and I think if nothing else, something about that collective stress means, one, there is room to ask, to room to sort of say, what is it to be a fund? What are the types of things we should be invested in? How do you sort of respond to a thing and then force everything else to bend around it rather than say, this is the form. So there's less commitment to the form, I guess, of what a fund is or what a fund does, even though I wouldn't say in any way that it would raise its hands up and say that it is an impact investor or that it is a social good company. And yet something about that stress that is personal then becoming collective means that we end up being able, I just end up being able to bring far more of myself and frankly, my angst than I've ever been able to bring to any company to there and haven't met with like similar feeling as opposed to either rejection or like told to put that aside or told that that doesn't matter. And I think that's translated to at least interesting experiments in terms of how far we want to push, you know, what it means to be supportive of a founder, how far we want to push what it means to be interested in a founder as a human being and say that we are human centric first and foremost and how we do things. If that contradicts, what do you do? How do you wrestle with that contradiction? And it's not to know the answer, but it's to be willing for that to engage. I can see why you joined as head of scouts. And I know you've then moved on to become head of networking community in, in 2020. So tell our listeners a bit about what do, what does that role entail? What does a day a day look like for Daisy? So yeah, I think that the title change was reflective of sort of a, a shift in strategy. When I first joined, the brief was relatively simple, if sparse. You know, Sequoia and other funds, especially the US, had been doing scouts. We want to do scouts too. Can you do that? And I was like, fine. And within a little bit of, of, of running it, a few things became clear. It's like, well, we're not Sequoia. So we don't have Sequoia money. So we're not giving people capital to invest in our behalf. And we're not yet at the point of sort of confidence and conviction, having not raised a second fund for us to start sort of divvying out carry because we don't know what would then be alienating to any new LPs you might pursue, especially institutional LPs. So I'm like, OK, you're telling me I cannot, and I'm agreeing, incentivize people with capital 
which means that I can't build what you've told me to build because those models are built primarily on people already being incentivized. So that you don't have to, like the dinners are extra and they're kind of irrelevant surplus to the effect. And there's certainly no community effort beyond that to force sort of bond building between these people because again, that's surplus to the effect. Whereas here, these are people who are barely engaged in venture because you don't have quite the same culture you had in Silicon, in Silicon Valley anyway of everyone's involved. Everybody knows founders. Everybody does the act of sending deal flow. There are lots of people who are super connectors and nodes within the ecosystem and operators who see founders but do not have this sort of muscle memory of sort of forwarding them onto funds because that isn't behavior here. So you need to basically inculcate new behavior. You don't have any direct incentive for that to happen, but you would like for me to host a couple of dinners and then in six months, send these people away and then have six more, like, you know, 15 more people join. So that doesn't make any sense because essentially now we have to find a different mechanism for engaging, which is probably going to be like building genuine community, building such deep bonds between and across these people and with fact that they want to, happy to engage. And then on top of that layer, the kind of resources and values, the sort of non-financial benefits that would to them be so beneficial, they would consider this to be fair exchange and no one would ever say, wow, I'm being exploited. If anything, they should say the opposite. I can't believe I'm getting so much from this fund. And all I have to do is send founders I was already going to meet anyway, and I would like to be helpful to anyway. So I'm like, the exchange makes sense, but just requires a completely different model. I have to not have a time limit on how long these relationships last. They should ebb and flow the way real relationships do real in the same way as one-to-one. They should involve me building an entire like suite of products and perks and tools that the average archetype of this individual, late 20s, early 30s, mover and shaker, probably freelancer, starting to dip into angel investing but doesn't have the capital yet, that type. What do they want? What do they need? Um, and it became a really fun, but also much, much, much more expansive project. And it also made sense that we should build more than the core community because a fund like ours that is opportunistic by nature should just needs to see so much more than it ever do. And if you want to do that, it is not enough to have 15 or 20 or even 30 like highly motivated individuals. You kind of want hundreds of people ostensibly looking for you, even if you have a different system for how you engage them all. And so that by definition means this role is more than just building this core community. It's also building the sort of strategy and the infrastructure to engage the rest of the network, as it were, that, you know, floats and oscillates around BACT. And so that was the step change between kind of the initial setup, which was much simpler. And really, I should have just kept my mouth shut and then just been paid pretty well for hosting some dinners for, for 15 people over a period of months and then rinsing, repeating, but I couldn't help it. And then now I suggested this thing instead. And so that's how I keep myself busy. And it's a mix of sort of product design, because so if you sit down and say, what does the archetype, which is kind of like me, what do they want? It's probably things that support their own network building, support their own learning and development, support their additional proximity to venture, because either they want to eventually be in venture, maybe run their own funds, or just people like to understand things that are in their lives. And then also stuff, you know, developing their own brand and their own sort of reach. Those are the things that are non-financial, but still genuinely valuable to an individual like this, like me or like you. And so really being able to deliver that, deliver that at scale means building tools and systems that can be like the app that I decided to build because I thought it would be interesting to figure out how to build an OCO app. But also I needed ways for people to access different tools and resources and be always able to go and find them where they needed them, but not also feel inundated like they have to take on everything. Or that just means like having it an event calendar and thinking about how to make those events interesting and full. 
or just being personally available and using myself as an additional resource within the community of access to me and my brain and my strategic thinking. Or that just looks like, to be honest, a lot of process building to receive the value that people are sending through the community because it both is the whole point of it, but also is itself a reinforcing thing. If you build amazing processes for how people you know, send deal flow, how, how they can do that frictionlessly, how that deal flow is well processed, how they can get feedback immediately to give to the founder and all of that, which is lots of automation and also lots of rules and like emails and stuff, then they're all the happier. And then it also means the whole thing keeps flowing. So a lot of the work then is around that kind of process building or just then being responsible for seeing the deal flow through or supporting the investment team on that. And then sometimes also on then like supporting the founders. And then there's like DNI stuff. Good apart stuff. From that. Wow, that's a big <laughs> that's a big job. Uh, and when you kind of expanded uh, just from victim of your own success and kind of, I guess, intellectual curiosity. So uh, wow, amazing. Well, well, thanks, thanks, Daisy. I'd love to share a podcast recommendation with you all, and it's one that I keep going back to: Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. In this podcast. Former Downing Street advisor Jimmy McLaughlin explores the future of the economy with Britain's leading entrepreneurs. The podcast raises awareness of all the exciting jobs that are being created every day by entrepreneurs, as well as helping listeners find jobs at these amazing companies. Upcoming guests in Series 3 include Dr. Pooja Sika, former GP and now partner at Octopus Ventures, and Gavin Barwell, former Chief of Staff for Theresa May. Jimmy's Jobs of the Future is available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. So definitely go check out this latest series. I can't recommend it enough. The main part of this conversation, we're going to talk about communities because you are a true expert at building them. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say firstly, congratulations on your recent additional role of COO of Diversity VC, which is amazing. We had the pleasure of hosting co-founder Chuck Warner um, on the podcast a few months back. And I know that as a group, you're really on a mission to drive real change in the VC industry. So just a real quick one on that. I just wanted to ask you what your hopes and dreams are now you're as a part of that fantastic company. Thank you. Um, yeah, to be honest, I think for us, the hope is just to build the kind of infrastructure that means that Everybody within this ecosystem that has the energy and the drive to want to push this sort of change forward is able to convert that into the change they want to see, right? Because everybody has a little bit of the tension might be different in, in sort of intensity, but everybody right now is aware that this is chaos and we would like for it to be better, both in terms of wider social issues and more specifically diversity, but what to do with that is very difficult. But if there are tools, resources, if there is just like easy ways to volunteer in the sort of kind of organizational infrastructure that means you show up, you want to have three hours of a month or one hour a year, whatever it is, that can be translated into real impact in the form of running a program, in the form of auditing a VC or whatever else it is, that means that real change ends up happening. So trying to build out that kind of organization and so looking for both like the capital to support, but most importantly, just the sort of thinking through design and then bringing in people to take it to the next level. No, it's really important work. And I think just before we come on to the community building piece of this conversation, I know there's going to be individuals listening to this who are from underrepresented communities that have probably a strong desire to get into VC, but 
historically that has not been an easy thing to achieve and i know that's part of one of the many things you're trying to fix what what advice do you have for them if they're listening to this going i want to i want to follow daisy's path whether it's on the investing side or or not what are your just kind of top tips for someone like that yeah i think it's i think it's 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 tough and it is changing slowly with you know things like what diversity is doing with future VC and internship programs like that and also you know similar other programs like I think the Newton program that Local Globe is doing but creating more sort of structural entry ways for people to get into VC will help and will continue to so definitely keeping an eye on those or searching for anything that might exist within that but in terms of the individual VC values sort of only one thing above and beyond all else, it's access. The reason VC is able to command such high management fees is that there is opacity in the market. It's hard to know what is good, when it's good, and then how to find it. And even if you find it, how do you get into it? So constantly thinking about how to show yourself as a person who can deliver value in that regard is huge. Is there some particular insight that is there some knowledge base that you have that few others might have because you studied materials and you're really interested in the like i don't know polymer carbons that go into that or you're really interested in the environment or you're really interested in x or y or you have access to a particular geography because you're from there or something is there some way in which you can develop your network of founders or your access or just use your insight and be able to show to a founder or to a fund that you can do this by for instance sending them deals nothing above and beyond gets a vc attention than an email being like hey i thought this might be interesting ones for you they'll click through it because they're not even sure who that is and they're like this probably is someone that i'm deeply close with and i've just forgotten their names because that's how interchangeable relationships can be in this industry but they'll click through and if they see that those deals are interesting they'll engage so Honing your ability to do the thing that VC ultimately cares about above and beyond anything else is probably the best possible advice I can give you. That's great advice. Thank you, Daisy. Well, when people think about communities and building them, your name comes up, I'd say, nine out of ten times. And our our mutual friend, Freddie Ford, the founder of the awesome startup Patch, kindly introduced us off the back of that. So I know you've published articles about the importance of communities And also you've mentioned how business communities can never be real communities without real change happening. So I'd love to dig into this a little bit more. Why don't we start though with how do you define community? And why do you think all of a sudden this this is like the go-to USP for a business at the moment? So the way that I think about community is pretty simple. At its core, it is a relationship that exists between a group of people but also simultaneously a psychological awareness that there is an identity to that group. So you can have 15 people all be sort of friends with each other. Like at least you could draw maybe not necessarily one to every 15 for each one, but close. But if there isn't also something on top of that, some sense that we are a group, we have a name maybe, or there are these rituals that we always do. There's something that makes us not just friends, but also something more. That's community. And the reason it is so compelling, the reason it has now become so popular for companies, for anything, is that community feeds us in a way that food can, in a way that anything can. It is a psychological food and it's a base necessity, like humans are social creatures, which is to say that because we have an evolutionary advantage in sort of engaging socially, we have the same system of like carrot and stick that we have for everything else. We have an evolutionary need for food. So there's a carrot and stick of you will be hungry and it will hurt and also food will taste good. Similarly, for, for social, you will be lonely and it will hurt. And also other hurts like you won't have as strong a sense of self because 
because we get that from confirmation and also then the pleasure of those things. Like when somebody, when you know who you are, which is to say, you know what you do, what keeps you occupied, what you are good at, what you enjoy, all of that knowledge comes from other people. Communities do this really well. And so anything that can feed people that well is a really good thing to either sell to them if you are a capitalist or is a really good thing to use to incentivize them to do other things if you are anybody. And that's why they're very popular now. And not now, they've always been, I guess, but until the, like the actual period in which we incentivize people with capital is tiny in the grand scheme of things. Community has always been there in terms of people did what they did because of their obligations and responsibilities to the group that they identified with. Yeah, totally. I think it's interesting and given the pandemic, I mean, it's obviously it's a hot topic in startup land and VC land, but it's also it's also just taking it back to local communities in the pandemic. I mean, you've just seen the power of community in how perhaps, you know, certain parts of society that have maybe been divided before have come together in ways that, you know, haven't happened for a long time in times of difficulty. So like community is something that's come up a lot, I think in, in, in all our lives recently. And I think it, when done right, you can really see the, the huge impact and power it can have. I think to, to that point, I wanted to ask you, and you've touched upon this a little bit, but what would you say are the key benefits to building an engaged community? And, and have you got any tips or pointers for people that might be looking to do this right now in their, their current companies? Yeah. So community, like anything, is is fuel. It's a mechanism and a medium by which you can do certain things. And so if you are trying to get a group of people to do something, then there is almost no greater incentive than to tie that thing to the very bonds that they have with each other. And so the doing of the thing is the thing that makes them feel like they're part of the community as they do the thing on and on and so forth. That's why it's useful. That's why it's a great way to get employees to go beyond the baseline motivation they might have for doing something to something broader. It's also like difficult and it's dangerous to maintain if not built properly, which is why you also see that work out really poorly sometimes. But it is the reason why that can be valuable. It's the reason if you have a sort of group of stakeholders that are external to the core team that you have you know, contractually obliged to do the work, that's again where it's really valuable. How do you get people to do a thing and keep doing a thing when there is no explicit law saying they have to or there's no explicit agreement binding them saying they have to? Again, that's where community is really powerful. And the incentive or the reason to do it, if it works really well to build an engaged one, is not only that it's a really powerful one, it's that it's self-reinforcing. If you manage to make something... It's like everyone has, maybe you don't anymore, but when you're younger, you certainly have activity friends. There are people that you're mates with because you do X together. It's literally the whole point of that friendship. And so at some point it's indissociable whether you loved the thing or whether you loved them. And that's why you love the thing. It's impossible to separate. And each time you do it, it just compounds even more because with each doing, you become even closer to the person. You want to spend even more time with them. So you want to do the thing even more. So unlike capital, where at some point, like, like I pay you X amount, it's to do it for X amount of time. At some point that time is over and then I must replenish. This will just keep doing itself. I think the most powerful community, what you know you've built a real community is one where in which you can disappear. The original kind of the thing, the ROI you wanted can disappear. And yet people will still keep needing to do some version of the behavior that you've built because that's now a a foundation of who they are. And so that's why it's worth doing it. But I think where people sometimes err is, 
Do you need to do one? Is the thing that you're trying to do like actually tied into the, like the necessity of building a community? Because it's, it's hard to do. It requires like effort in a way that people also really misunderstand. And so we're likely to underinvest and then reap the consequences of it. You need to understand what I'm talking about, understand how social behavior works, why it is what it is, why it does what it does. And you also then need to be able to turn that into actions and strategies and processes and they need the energy to do that thing the difference between i invited a bunch of people to a dinner we sat and we ate and i thought about the perfect location to do it that would inspire this kind of mindset do i want them nice and relaxed do i want them like energized and then also what are the activities of that dinner what is the question that i make everyone answer or what is like all of that thinking and frankly manipulation in order to get people to behave in a certain way to then create a certain feeling is work and it's really wonderful, but you have to want to do that. And also you have to feel as though that work is commensurate with the return that you want. But if it isn't, it'll very quickly start to make no sense, which is where you get people looking and wondering why the community sort of division is so bloated or filled with so much like, like cost and not enough return in the sense. These are the sorts of conversations I think people don't have on the outset quite enough. That's really interesting. So I guess part of this is about, for those thinking about building communities, do you really need to build one? What's the purpose behind that? And if so, really, if you haven't thought that through, do so before you invest a load of time in something that may not really stand for anything. Yeah, that's, that's amazing advice. What are some of the challenges you faced in building these communities, you know, for, for BACT and, 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 and in other areas of your, your life? What are some of the pitfalls that people need to watch out for uh, and anything that you've learned along the way? I think it is similar to maybe the conflict that arises anytime we try to do something that's sort of creative, but then also do it towards a specific end in a sort of capital sense or corporate sense or work sense, because there are contradictions within that. Really, if you wanted to build a community, a truest community in the sense, which is just that the highest goal, the only goal is the bonds between these peoples to go from strangers to that thing I described where everybody is connected to everybody and they have a group identity sense. If you wanted to do that, there should be nothing else in your way, nothing else that could get in the way of that goal. And so you constantly optimize for just that. The second there is a dual goal where it has to both do that and do something else, it becomes complicated. It's not already a contradiction. You can have a dual goal that is sort of overlapping where like, say, I want a community because I want these people to take care of each other. Those are two goals, but they overlap. If they are community, they will take care of each other. So it's fine. But then when you have, I have a community, but I also needed to send deals that I do, or I have a community, I needed to send sales, you know, leads that will activate, or I have a community, but I needed to do marketing surveys for this company. Those can end up contradicting, not always, but it is very possible that the thing that will deliver more ROI is the thing that will mean less bond, like fewer bonds are developed or not as deep bonds, or just that your energy and your time is split in terms of what you are optimizing for in terms of process or design. And so that is a constant challenge. And I think it's shared by anyone that I know who's working community of the tension almost between this is the thing and this is the thing. And they, they overlap, but not conflict, it's not a yeah. full circle. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful. Thank you, Daisy. I think there's been one massive thread across your career, obviously this building of communities, but, but it's just this passion to drive change. And clearly you've got that, you know, problem solving mentality. And I think there's also that, that, that is very much linked to DE&I, which you, uh, you know, I, I have, I've spoken a lot about and, and, and uh, you're obviously very involved with when it comes to changing 
VC. Uh, you know, with diversity VC, we know it's an industry that has a problem when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Just wanted to get your perception on like where the industry is at, like how you how much change is is happening or has happened. What like what what does the future hold? And and you know, are there things we can feel optimistic about when it comes to this big topic? I'd love to just get your thoughts on that. And and maybe when it comes to diversity with communities, maybe there's a part there about um, I'd love to get your perspective on. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. And I always feel like my answer is kind of depressing, but also kind of hope inducing, depending on your mood on the day. But I would say that we are basically just at the starting point, which is to say, if you look statistically, you know, year on year, the actual sort of, say, for instance, disparity between investment going to all male teams, mixed teams and, you know, female teams, it's still absurd. It's still like, you know, single digit percentage, even like sort of five or lower to all female teams, for instance, mix gets a little higher, but still maybe low uh, double digits, 10, 15. And then the rest is still all male teams, which is to say that that is what you would consider a starting point. If you turn around, you're like, we have a diversity problem, guys. Those are the numbers we would picture. And then we would start working. The reason it is like it's been a long time to get here is that all of the preliminary conversation we've been having has not been about fixing anything. It's just been about arguing about whether there is any problem yeah, and what it would look like to... Shining light on this massive issue, yeah. Which is when you like infuriating if you want to focus on it too much that we've spent about a decade just to agree to start to do the work, more or less. On the other hand, we are at the starting point in the sense of now, if we note the discourse that is happening, and I fully empathize with everyone who has said, I'm not doing any DNI panels, I am done. There are lots of black women, there are lots of men of color. There's all sorts of people who are just done with it. And I get that. If you have, if I had been doing it for a decade, I would also be done, which is how the baton pass works. Some version of me will come along who is young and sprightly and not yet jaded and will take my place when I'm jaded. But I still have energy left, which is why I can get excited about the fact that the discourse as it stands now is about action is like, hey, you should do the DVC standard and audit your processes so you understand where the exclusion is baked in. There is an understanding now, or at least increased understanding that we're talking systemic factors. We're not talking about one to one prejudice alone. We're talking about how that prejudice has infected everything about how things work, how the very structure operates such that you can have all the best intentions and still not change the outcome, which is the explanation that people have been missing for. How is it that everyone seems to give a shit, but nothing has changed in terms of discrepancy of actual outcomes? You're like, because caring doesn't undo structure. If you have already decided that you have a process and that process you now implement without thinking and at its core, it excludes people from even getting involved, then your intentions are irrelevant. And I think that disconnect is something that people are grasping and the how to change it is something that people are grasping. If you say you have great intentions, but you only advertise through word of mouth and through networks, then it doesn't matter because your networks are fixed, relatively speaking, in terms of their discrepancy. And so you have to implement sort of, you know, blind, not even necessarily like full on blind application processes that we love be applied, everyone should try it. But at the very least, you have to publicly advertise your roles. And then you have to try and have the same process for everyone, like all the basic stuff. And that's on the like hiring and diversifying the teams. And that's starting to see. And on the investment side, audit your processes, like where are you getting your deal flow from? And are all your sources setting all the same things because they're also sourced from their networks? 
How do you have other people engage with you? What is the sort of drop off rate when you go from inbox to meetings? And if it's massively just like, you know, spread out, then yeah, it's probably because there are markets you presume don't have value or there are just people you are not as pulled by when you see their team slide that like you might be if you saw this university logo or this, you know, angel advisor there. So looking for the cracks in the system rather than looking for the personal blame, which is a waste of everybody's time and nobody cares how sorry you are or how hateful you are. It is irrelevant. All that matters is how do you do the practice of your job and how does that either include or exclude people? So we are at the starting point, but we are now doing the thing and having the conversations that are relevant to the problem rather than weird, disconnected ones about people's feelings. And so I think we will start to see the progress that we thought we would be seeing when these conversations were starting in the UK scene, et cetera, about a decade ago. I think that's an optimistic place to end a, <laughs> a depressing situation. But actually, I love what you said there. And I think it's about action and it's also about accountability, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's actually holding these companies to account and us all having, you know, taking accountability to, to help like change what is just been going on for far too long thank you daisy we're sadly at the end so we've got three wrap-up questions yeah really interested in your your answers to these so first of all mentorship is obviously the the kind of at the heart of this podcast being uh, the 40 minute mentor do you have a mentor and if there was one person in the world that you could be mentored by who would it be Ooh, ooh, good questions i don't have a mentor in any sort of formal capacity. I've never had one. I struggle with that because I have no idea where I want to go when you're supposed to find someone who is where you want to go, but further ahead, I don't know. So I can't know. So I can't find one, but I have lots of peer mentors and I'm really grateful for them. Alex Brinicki that I work with is incredible. My boyfriend is amazing. I think basically I have just assembled the world's best advisory council, but then tricked them by sort of calling it friendship into doing quite a great deal of free coaching and free soundboarding on a regular basis, which is what it should be, by the way. But that's my mentorship solution in terms of who I want to be mentored by. I don't know. I think I want more of the same, more peer mentors that are also just like confused and slightly twisted people trying to do the best they can in the world around them. Bonus points if they happen to have my weird stack of autism, ADHD and depression that makes me into a particularly weird breed of human. That's the thing I'm trying to figure out more of the parameters are and work out. So I'm looking for more of those people. Hit me up if you're one. But I don't know if there's any one particular individual. I want to meet and talk to everybody who has ever lived ever. So... Yeah. And, and again, I think I, I love how human our answer that is. And I actually love the fact you mentioned peer mentorship because a lot of people come on and say, you know, Barack Obama or, <laughs> you know, and we've had some brilliant answers to this, but actually I've always said, you know, bit of a broken record but mentorship really comes in so many forms you can have people that are way older than you and more experienced you can have people that you're you know I am mentored in a way by my mentees so I learn just as much from them as they do from me and then then the peer mentorship is arguably the most important in some ways I think I've learned probably the most from other recruitment owners that have been through a similar but slightly different challenges and approach things in different ways and I learned tons from that so I love that answer. Uh, thanks, Stacey. And given the success you've had, given all the problems in the world that you are looking to tackle and change, and I wish you all the best with, with all of those, how do you want to be remembered when you're, when you're sitting back at the end of your career, a very, very well-deserved rest? What do you want people to say about you and, and how do you want to be remembered? 
I hope people think that I was kind and I was funny. Those are two good ones. I think they will do that. I think they will do that. And before we finish, last question. For any of our listeners thinking about a career move that could be starting a business that requires funding from BackVC, could be pivoting into an investing role, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? And that could be something maybe you'd have told yourself a few years ago at the beginning of your career. I think transitionary periods, I think, are helped by two important things. One is to try and be as doggedly analytical as you can be about diagnosing what it is that you were trying to leave and what it is that you're looking for. And I think the first question leads to the second, because people have a general sense of dissonance or disharmony or discomfort. And that's good, but that's a starting point. You have no idea what it is you are comfortable for. It's like babies know something hurts, but they have no idea what the problem is, let alone the solution. So if you just start from there to try and move, then that's why you feel stuck. If however, you decide that you're not going to stop until you get to the very bottom and you sort of write the first sentence to say why and why and you keep going. And then you ask for all the parts and you're like, oh, it was that I didn't have enough autonomy. That's what it was. Or it was that I didn't whatever. And you find that it's actually something very specific. So that's the first one. And then the second one then is have as many conversations you can have about the problem as it were. Like, decide that you are going to just bring it up with everyone you meet and then force yourself to meet multiple people a day and then just keep talking about it. You will get bored of hearing yourself talking about it, but it won't matter because you're spreading the pain and lots of people are hearing instead of one person over and over again. And you are, with each time you say it, you're reiterating and reifying the description of the problem. You are explaining the parts you have since then understood or ruled out or ruled in. And it's essentially, it's any decision-making process. And there, there you have both your concise understanding of the problem from the first part, hopefully, and then you have your process for working out the problem, which is just to keep repeatedly talking about it until you're done. And if you cannot find enough people in your life to talk to, I'm lucky it is my job to be friends with people. And so I have lots of them. Then just pay for a therapist. It is the best thing you can do. They are now contractually obliged to listen to you. And it's wonderful. Amazing. What a great place to, to end this, Daisy. Thank you for being such a brilliant 40 minute mentor i know our listeners will will love this chat so thank you so much my pleasure thank you so much for having me so fun i really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 minute mentor and if you did please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk thanks again for all your support